I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Friday Golf Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today we're talking about the evolution of modern golf architecture with Bruce Hepner. I've wanted to have Bruce on the podcast for a long time. He is a, a bit of a legend in the golf architecture business, definitely one of the people who helped drive the restoration movement, the rediscovery of golden age architecture, the design build trend, really so much of what defines this current era of golf course design. Bruce was there for all of it. He served as the vice president of Tom Doak's Renaissance Golf Design from 1993 to 2010, which was the period when Renaissance kind of went from an outsider band to one of the busiest and most influential firms in the industry. Bruce worked on courses like Pacific Dunes, Old MacDonald, Rock Creek Cattle Company, the Renaissance Club, and he was the lead associate at Ballyneal. Cape Kidnappers, and Streamsong Blue. So pretty sturdy resume. He also handled a lot of Renaissance Golf Design's consulting and restoration commissions. And when he left Renaissance 13 years ago, he continued working with many of those courses. A few of his most significant restorations have been at Essex County Club in Massachusetts, Timaquana in Florida, Piping Rock in New York, Blue Mound in Wisconsin, and Cape Arundel in Maine. One reason I'm talking to Bruce right now is that he just finished a renovation at Percy Warner, which is a municipal nine-hole course in Nashville. And that job is a great example of how much can be done at an affordable public course with a relatively low budget. You know, so much of what I've been thinking about lately when it comes to golf architecture, Bruce represents. You know, I've been thinking about affordability, sustainability, the virtues of being patient with a golf course as opposed to trying to get everything done all at once. You know, in Bruce's career, he really pursued so much of that. And so I'm excited to hear his perspective on how the industry has changed since he entered it 35 years ago, what he makes of the current state of golf architecture, and what some of his key experiences have been along the way. So all of that is coming up. But before we get to my conversation with Bruce Hepner, a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, Fat Cork. Fat Cork is all about champagne. They work exclusively with small family-run grower champagne houses to bring you the highest quality cuvées from France. Grower champagne is produced by people who also grow the grapes and tend the vines on their own land. It is expressive of a particular vineyard, it's made with care, and it's often produced through methods that have been passed down through generations. So it's champagne with a real sense of place and sense of history. So we've got a holiday coming up here. Thanksgiving is approaching. And you know what's really good to have for Thanksgiving is some excellent, unique champagne. If you show up to Thanksgiving dinner, or Black Friday for that matter, with fat cork, you will be the hero of the day. So now is the time to get some champagne shipped to you. There are lots of options on Fat Cork's gift page at fatcork.com 
or at our custom Friday golf page at fatcork.com slash golf. There's everything from single bottles to magnums for the Thanksgiving table to gift sets that you can bring to your mother-in-law. Whatever champagne-related need you have for the holidays, Fat Cork has you covered. And make sure to use the code GOLF, G-O-L-F, to get free shipping on any of Fat Cork's products. Again, that's fatcork.com slash golf. Great small business. They support us. We support them. And with that, here is Bruce Hepburn. All right, Bruce, I hear you like music. So do you ever listen to music when you're on a construction site? Oh, we all do. Everybody that worked for Tom and uh, I still do. We all have ear pods. We all have the latest, greatest ear pods. And uh, we're always listening to music, sharing music with the other guys. Um, also listening to a lot of books which is kind of really, you know, when you're sitting in an excavator building bunkers for eight to 10 hours, you can burn through some books in, in no time. Um, so we do a little bit of both. I've heard different things about whether it's really possible to listen to a book or to a podcast for that matter while you're shaping features and things like that. Some guys say that, you know, it's too distracting to have a uh, people talking in their ear. Are, are you not one of those people? I'm definitely not one of those because, you know, shaping is, is being intuitive. It's, it's letting it go, you know, good shapers let it, just let it fly. And they let, they let their instincts go. You know, you give, as an architect, you give a shaper where Tom would give us a few cues and then he wants to go do our best work. And I do that still now when I shape bunkers, I just kind of, I don't have any kind of too many preconceived notions. So I kind of let, you know, just let the freedom go. And I don't mind if there's music and it kind of keeps, it keeps my mind occupied a little bit, but I'm, I'm you know, obviously focusing on what I do, but yeah, it definitely helps me. It gets me in a good mood. You know, happy shaper. I, you know, I always learned as running projects, happy shapers are great shapers. If they're, they're, they're irritated because their internet is down at the house or something like that. Uh, you know, they're not doing great work. So, you know, my job, a lot of times running project for Tom was keep the, keep the happy people happy. And you wouldn't believe how much great work comes out of that. What kind of music do you like to listen to? I listen to all, you know, I was, I listened to a bunch of jazz and I just got a new, um, I have a pretty nice stereo down in the main room. So I just got a new piece of equipment. So, um, I listen to a lot of jazz, but you know, I'm a rock and roll guy. I've got, you know, 1500 albums and you name it, I listen to it. You've got you've got the physical collection as opposed to just the digital collection. I'm uh, I do because it's a leftover from when I was a kid. But and I have I have a turntable sitting right next to my there's my vinyl system is up here, but downstairs it's all digital. It's all streaming, high end streaming, and um, that's really opened up a great world of music. Where we used to, you know, go to Borders or you know when I was a kid we went to Corvettes, which is an offshoot of Kmart's, and just filter through the the albums and just pick one out and get five for or three for five bucks um with that isn't available nowadays so you have to get your music online which is really hard um so uh streaming has really opened up a new world for me yeah you know it's it's interesting how music discovery has changed when i was really getting into music on my own which tends to happen when people are what teenagers i suppose 
burning CDs was the big thing, right? That's and if you mention that to a kid today, they don't know what the hell you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. But uh, that was really exciting that you could essentially. I mean, it's not good for the musicians, but uh, you could you could just get whatever your friends had. You could you could burn the CD and and start building up a pretty big physical music collection that way Um, and that's kind of gone away you know people don't curate their music collections as much anymore because it is all streaming no and you know what was the the missing element which is kind of coming back with a new a new thing called rune you know i i me and my buddies we were all you know we were in the liner notes and seeing who who played guitar on that that song or who was the drummer and then you then you went over and picked out his albums and you know nowadays liner notes engineering where it was recorded, all that kind of stuff is gone, but it, it's coming back with uh, some of the digital formats. Do you ever draw parallels between the way music is made and the way golf courses are built? Just in the way that it's produced, right? You have these different people with these different roles, and sometimes you bring in the, you know, the crack guitarist. Oh, yeah. You know, Tom has his band, house band. You know, which I always said it was the Funk Brothers from Motor City because I'm from Detroit. You know, Gil's got the um, the cavemen. Uh, Bill's got his, you know, the crew. And it is. It's it's like having the Wrecking Crew. It's got. It's like having, you know, the Funk Brothers. It's having, um, you know, the guys from Stax, you know, Perkett T and MGs as your house band. And then you bring in, you know, that was, you know, I always talk about Bally Neal. When I ran Bally Neal, I was just rolling the rock stars through that. There was so much talent coming through, and I'd I'd have them come in through a couple of weeks. Some of court, you know, Dan Proctor was there for the beginning, and oh, really? Because he's mainly known for working with uh, Corin Crenshaw. Yeah, so I, I, you know, we had a couple of those guys, and I was rolling the, you know, the Renaissance talent in. You know, Kai Golby and Schneider and I were there full time, and Eric Iverson would come in for a while. Schneider uh, Slonk would come in. Don Plasic, we bring him, put him on a dozer. Um, it was, uh, we, you know, and that that was part of orchestrating the talent. And I did the same thing at Streamsong. You know, we, we you just kind of bring them in, give them a few cues. All right, I need you to go work on those two holes because I don't need to worry about them because uh, I'm worried about this. And just go do what you think is cool. And, and Tom will come through and, uh, you know, edit it. That's why Tom was the great editor. And uh, he just let it, let it, let us flow, give us our best, you know, our best work without any inhibitions and um, he come through and edit it. And it's, 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 it's a great, it's, that it has great parallels with music. I guess you're right. Yeah. He's sort of the producer. Yeah. 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 And the, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure if there's a, a construction site supervisor equivalent in the music industry, but that's sort of what you're describing as what your role was, at least at stream song, uh, Bally Neal. I know, I think you did that work at Cape kidnappers as well. Yeah. So that that's an interesting role. I have all sorts of things I want to talk to you about Bruce, but, um, maybe we should start with, uh, one of your recent projects, which was a, a renovation of a nine hole, municipal course in Nashville, Tennessee called Percy Warner. There was a, a ribbon cutting ceremony for the new course last month. My mm-hmm. understanding is that it's sort of official public opening for play is going to be next year. Yeah. Um, so how did you get involved in this project? You live in uh, Traverse City. Nashville's a long way from Traverse City. What was the connection there? Um, I've been working at Hillwood Country Club in Nashville for probably well over 20 years. Um, 
And obviously with music, you know, they talked me into coming down. I'm like, I don't know, but I've never been in, we've never been to Nashville now. Yeah. I was going to say, if you're a music fan, well, Nashville uh, is appealing in an obvious way. Yeah. Now it's like, a, it's like a second home for me, but, uh, I've been working in Hillwood and have, you know, for 20 years, I'm a member there now or honorary member. And, um, a really dear friend of mine, Stuart Smith, who's a member there. He used to play in the tour. He was an all American at university of Tennessee. Great guy, just a dear friend. And, I was shaping bunkers. I think it was 2018. He goes, Hey, you bored? I'm like, yeah, I go, yeah, I, I could use a break. He goes, let's go over. And I want to show you the golf course. I grew up playing as a kid. And we went over this little nine holers just down the road from Bellmead country club. It's in Bellmead and Percy Warner park. It's a nine hole. It was really beat up. They had um, winter and summer greens, you know, two sets of greens, one for the winter, one for the summer, hardly any grass on the place. Just built a new clubhouse, and um, it's like within the confines of, of, of a beautiful park. Just this, you know, I don't know how many thousand acre park this is. And he was, we started walking, and I'm like, I'm walking, and I'm walking. And I'm like, the routing's really good, the green sites are really good. I go, man, this has a lot of potential. And it had fallen the wayside because you know the Nashville park system that was owned by the Metro Parks. They had kind of lost their way in maintaining. They, you know, they didn't think golf was that important at the time. That you know, now they're they're starting to realize it. So they didn't really sink a lot of resources into these golf courses, and they're they're playing the hell out of these golf courses. You know, that uh, I always I always tell the stories like when we were there, I'm on the first tee, and there was two kids with their hats on backwards and their shirts untucked. One guy with a Bud Light T-shirt, and an old guy with a Cypress Point shirt. And I was kind of <laughs> and pulling a trolley and that's the clientele they have. And it's uh, very diverse and it was just a cool facility. And I, he goes, well, they, they'd been trying to rebuild this for years, but you know, the money, you know, the wrong people got involved and the, the price tag was up to 5 million to rebuild it. And it just died. And um, it was like his vision. It was prior guys to him, but he was the impetus behind it. And he's, he's a trustee on the Tennessee Golf Foundation. I go, I could see this. I could, it was like, I always tell people, I saw it in slow motion, how cool this place could be. It's a, it's a, a hub for all these walkers, you know, that they, they park in the parking lot and go up and hike in the mountains there. Um, the mountain biking group is out of that parking lot and clubhouse too. And then there's this cute little nine-hole golf course. I think it was part 34. And I could just see it. You know, I grew up playing public nine hole public golf courses in Detroit, you know, caddy and all that stuff. So I could see how this could be. And the more people I talked to, that was the first golf ball they'd ever hit was on that place, especially all the people there in Bellmead, which is a pretty steep neighborhood. So um, I said, yeah, this is doable. Let me do a drawing while I'm here. So on the, on the side, you know, on the side at night, I was doing little design plans for it. And that kind of got the ball rolling. How did the funding end up coming together? What was your budget and what ended up being the scope of the project? Yeah. So um, they said, the only way we're going to do this, you know, there was always a group called the Friends of Warner Park that uh, Jenny Hannon ran that. And she, they heard a mechanism to raise funds for Warner Park. And they were putting millions of dollars into the park, doing these great delays and, uh, um, masonry work. So the mechanism there, and then the Tennessee Golf Foundation got involved, you know, through Stewart, 
So Whit Turnbaugh, the president of that, and then Jim Seabury, two very powerful guys in the uh, you know Tennessee golf, uh, got involved. And we um, and I think Stuart, what he did is he played golf. He heard the mayor, mayor Cooper um, was a golfer. It was like a like a closet golfer. After a long day, he he'd been seen on uh, Harbeth Hills, which is around the corner, playing golf at six o'clock at night. Pulling his own, you know, carrying his own bag, and Stuart <laughs> goes, "We need to get a hold of that guy." There so you go. Stuart invited him to some kind of an outing, and befriended him and said, "Hey, listen, you know, this would be pretty cool. You know, the park system is not really funding these pro, you know, these golf courses well." And Prissy Warner had two two guys maintaining that golf course. That's all it was. So um, we got into the Mayor Cooper, John Cooper's ear. And that kind of got the ball rolling. So then um, between Mayor Cooper, the Tennessee Golf Foundation, and the Friends of Warner Park, they put it all together and we started having fundraising events. So they'd fly me in and we'd, we'd have a cocktail party at somebody pretty famous's house, you know, and just bringing people in and started raising funds. Uh, we wanted to raise two and a half million dollars. Um, and so it was, it was a grassroots movement and all, you know, I would go to these meetings and, um, you know, Sarah, Ing Sarah Ingram, the Curse Cup captain, you know, she was at these meetings, you know, and she was all on board. Um, so we had people like that. And the money, once the money, once we got raised over a million bucks, we knew we could pull this off. So they pulled me in officially. I brought in McCurick Golf out of Florida because I have such a good relationship with them, the contractor. I said, we're just going to come in as a package deal. Um, I think the budget, my budget was $1.7 million, 12 new greens, you know, nine new greens. And then I built a big short game practice facility for the PJ junior program, a big putting course. So I had 12 new greens, 12 brand new bunkers, used bunker solutions, you know, the latest technology, all new tees and a brand new single row irrigation system. So what we did was I knew this still had to be maintainable, sustainable, and playable. So, you know, we didn't go hog wild like some of these projects. Whether and, 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 you know, one point or $2.5 million is a lot easier to raise than $20 million. Oh, yeah. And so it, 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 the ball kept rolling. I'm like, I look at Stuart, I'm like, I think we're going to actually do this, you know, and we actually pulled it off and started last year. Um, and, you know, there were there was some hesitation from the city. You know, they were kind of set in their ways and like, no, we're, we're just going to do this. We're going to hand it to you. But we're also we all also need to know that you guys are on board and going to maintain this. So we squeezed the bureaucracy and, you know, between us and Mayor Cooper on the top, we squeezed down into them and they started believing it. And it was just a, a project of passion for everybody. Jim Nance got involved because Jim lives seven doors down the road. And so he'd come out and walk the golf course with me and, uh, you know, a lot of people involved. So it was, uh, you know, a great pleasure for all of us. It's turned out really good. Uh, we got a little bit of a late start, you know, hooking up uh, a water line to the city water line. Didn't, didn't realize how much red tape that would be. We thought we'd just tap into the water line and be good, but you know, you got to go through all kinds of agencies. Um, but we, so we had a little late start in grass in the greens. So that's why we had the formal, 
ribbon cutting last month with, you know, Jim and I were, Jim Nance was there to speak and, and I gave a speech too. And all the donors got to be there and hand out all these cool hats and stuff like that. And we're going to open up sometime uh, early summer when it's, it's perfect. You know, a, a lot of municipal courses would love to have a couple million dollars, mm-hmm. but that is such a small budget compared to oh most golf construction projects these days. Even if you're talking about a little renovation, like a little tweak here and there, uh, the millions start adding up really quickly. How do you do a project like this on that kind of budget? Or I guess that the real question is how do you produce good golf course design? Cause you, you made some fairly dramatic changes out oh, yeah. there. How do you make good golf course design happen on a budget that small? What do you kind of extract from the usual process? What do you say? Okay, we don't need that. And then what do you focus on? We didn't, I didn't pair much back. You know, the one thing was building the greens. There's Bermuda greens. You know, you don't need the USJ greens. We just, we just build them out of topsoil and spread some sand on top and put some drainage in and called it good. So that's a million dollar thing right there. Lop off of somebody else's budget. I only had 12 bunkers. You know, Tom, Tom was always like, ah, bunkers are overrated. You know, Augusta only has 30. You know, it's all about ground features. And that's what I did. I concentrated on building really cool greens that were accessible. So they're, you know, say um, the first, first hole, we have a bunker on the left-hand side that you could tuck the pin behind, but have open approach and fairway all the way around, even to the backside of the green. So it's chipping away, chipping all the way around. Um, and that's sustainable because the maintenance crew, you know, we're hoping to have four people maintain this golf course when we open up. We've asked for that. And he just takes the fairway mover and rams it, you know, goes right around the green and the backside. So building all these cool short grass areas, um, <clears throat> which I love in the first place, are easier to maintain for them. So we rolled that short grass right into the second tee. So you're just constantly walking on short grass. So it's, it is sustainable and it's maintainable and it's very playable. You know, I didn't, I didn't pull any punches on the greens. They're cool greens. There's some contour them, but they're accessible because at least half of the approach is open. So, you know, high handicappers can run the ball in and there's always a couple of really tasty hole locations for, for really good players. You know, we plan to have some cool events, amateur events there just because the place is, you know, place rocks. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I would say I didn't dummy down the design. I just figured out how to maintain it with least amount of money. And the tees are just topsoil tees. You know, it's fine. Single row irrigation was huge. I was going to ask about that. That's old school. It's old school. And that's all you need. When the, when the fairways are 35 yards wide, because we have tree lines, it, that's all you need. Yeah. And it's Bermuda, you know, that, that and we, and we didn't regrass the fairways. We only regrassed around the greens and around the tees. And these fairways, you know, Darwin had kicked in for many years. It's, the, you know, the survival of the fittest. These green fairways were pure. You know, last winter, most of the country clubs had winter kill in our Bermuda. We had no winter kill, you know, because it's just old school, unirrigated. You know, the irrigation system they had before we got there were quick couplers. You know, that's, that's somebody walking around night watering and they hadn't done it in a long time. So, but the grass, so the grass knew how to grow without all the nutrients, all the high profile stuff. So it was laying there 
And to me, it's just, you know, it's kind of going back to, you know, all the great courses that I've studied and, you know, we all studied as kids and everything built before 1920 was just like I built now. So, you know, that's how you do it. You just build old school and just be fine. You know, we're not going to have the greens 13 on the stint meter. You know, we're going to mow our tees at a half inch as the same as the fairways because you're using a tee and we're going to mow the greens, you know, obviously an eighth inch or lower, but, you know, they all surface drain. Uh, we have good soils under them. And um, we have, you know, we did do ins and out irrigation heads around the greens. Um, so we can control the water on the greens versus the outside. But it wasn't that hard. It was just kind of going back to your, your roots and going, you know, a lot of this, these $15 million renovations, I just pulled my hair out. I'm like, where are you spending the money? You know, I'm used to, if you look at my projects, you know, I just, just came from Weathersfield Country Club in Hartford. They used to have the Sammy Davis, the GHO was there before they moved over there. And we, we rebuilt all the bunkers and I regrassed, you know, all the short gas around the greens, uh, expanded the fairways, built, built a handful of tees for well under a million dollars. And that's just as, that's just as good as anybody else's. Right. Yeah. You know, the $15 million. So I don't know where the extra zero is going. Hopefully it's in their pockets, somebody's pockets. But <laughs> uh, I think, you know, some of the, some of the modern construction is a bit excessive. And so that's how we did it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I th it's important to, you know, say it louder for the people in the back. Like <laughs> that's uh, in, even in an environment of rising costs, it's, it's possible to find ways to do these things without spending enormous amounts of money. And that's really important for these municipal facilities, especially, you know, I, a lot of uh, municipal courses that I see spend a lot of money on bunkers are frustrated with their bunkers. Their bunkers are, are sort of money pits, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, some end up getting rid of them or not maintaining them very well, or, you know, finding solutions that are maybe not ideal for the quality of the golf course. You built a new set of bunkers at Percy Warner. There aren't many of them, as you mentioned, you don't need many, but when it comes to shaping a bunker for a facility like this, what does an easily maintainable bunker look like you know they're they're simple forms you know i'm still an artist so I, I you know i snuck in some cool stuff into them yeah i mean you don't i bruce hepner doesn't just want to go and build ovals right you want to you want to do something else so how do you do that while also making them easily maintainable here's what we did is um you know obviously you know the two guys that maintain the golf course oh my god you know get rid of the bunkers we can't you know i go first of all get rid of that sand pro i go then the sand pro is not getting in my bunkers Second of all, we're going to hand rake these bunkers only when they need them. If somebody was not in that bunker yesterday, why are we raking it today? And third, I took that right off their, their plate because uh, Kevin Fort, who's the golf pro over at uh, over this in Harbeth Hills, he has one of the great, a great PGA uh, junior program, you know, Jim Nance's kids in it. He has a hundred and some odd kids in his programs. And so I built that facility for him. The first lesson of the program is go learn how to fix ball marks and go learn how to rake bunkers. So the kids are going to rake the bunkers. So nice. That's how we did that. <laughs> and they're going to fix ball marks first before they ever hit a ball. Um, so I took that off them. But to build them, um, 
you know, they're, they're not high flashes, but we use bunker solutions, which is that kind of carpeting uh, you put on the floors. So if I did flare any sand, I flare the sand up, it'll, it'll, it'll stamp in the face to keep it, you know, keep the bunkers from being contaminated. And the rule is, and I do this at all my courses, what I've realized is bunker maintenance wears out bunkers, not golfers, you know, and the only reason we have to maintain bunkers is because golfers do a crappy job breaking their own bunkers. So um, my motto is, you know, hand rake, but only spot rake, only rake the area where that it was disturbed, where somebody did a bad job of raking yesterday, or if nobody was in it, stay out of it and keep those sand pros out of there. You know, they're the ones that chew things up. They think it's easy to do and they just destroy bunkers. Um, and they're small. They're thousand square foot bunkers or less. They're not huge. And they're perfectly located. And, uh, you know, I also build them, you know, properly built bunkers don't allow water to run into them from the outside. So, you know, I know how to build bunkers. So um, you'll see that there, there's some art to them, but um, they're very maintainable. So I understand there's more work for you on the docket at Nashville's municipal courses. Mm -hmm. uh, what what can you tell me about that? What what more is going to happen? Luckily, uh, Mayor Cooper is not the mayor anymore. It was, he was uh, that was his last term, but um, he was so excited and so happy of the of the product we did at Percy Warner just before he left office. That you know they, you know, I don't know what a budget of a of, of Nashville city, but it's probably close to a billion dollars. You know, annual budget. Um, he gifted us uh, or granted us the Tennessee Golf Foundation $2 million out of the city funds to go over and um, take on Shelby Golf Club golf course, which is over in East Nashville, which is kind of the, the hipster area. A lot of people are moving there. You know, a lot of guys walking around with jeans rolled up and work boots and <laughs> in beards. And, and, they, and they didn't just come from a construction site. They're, no, uh, no. But they're, it's a really cool area. they're on their way to, the, to a bar. Yeah. No, but it's a 1923 Ross course. You know, Ross never built it, but he did drawings for it. Um, and it's his routing. So they have, um, it's the least played golf course in the Nashville circuit. Nashville owns seven golf courses. Uh, Brent Snedeker grew up playing there. Lou Graham grew up playing there. So we've got them involved. Um, so basically, you know, what I can do for uh, two million bucks, I, I did a, a plan and we just said we're capping it at two million bucks. So we're going to rebuild all the greens because they have the winter and summer greens there also. Push them together, build like five to six thousand square foot greens. Um, same kind of technology we over at Percy. Uh, Re-irrigate the green sites. They have a, a relatively new irrigation system throughout the whole place. And then um, move some cart paths. You know, they've never had an architect working in Nashville public golf course. Hey, we need a car pass. So they send some guy out there and he paints them and half of them like down the middle of a fairway. <laughs> yeah, like, you see this a lot. Yeah, yeah like get out of here. You know, I was like, oh my God. You know, and the tree, luckily they had, a, they had a tornado come by, which is good and bad, but a tornado came by and wiped out all the really bad trees that were poorly planted. And so we're going to rebuild all the bunkers, um, do a little bit of drainage, and any money we have left over, um, from the project, we'll build some tees. And then just down the hill from that is a place called the Vinnie Links. And Vince Gill was involved in that. So it's a little nine hole part three course for kids and anybody. Uh, a very cool facility ran by, run by the Tennessee Golf Foundation. Just these cool little short holes. You go over there and you take two clubs with you and play. Um, there's a great kids program there too. 
And but they when they built them, the greens are great. They have like four bunkers, and um, they're starting to maintain those well. But the tees are small. They have a little strip of astroturf, and the tees are like a thousand square feet. So um, I did a plan to t- triple the size of the tees so you can have a grass all year round. And we're hoping to raise some private money to do that while we're in town. And McCurick Golf is still going to be the contractor. They love them. I do. I've worked with Alan McCurick for years. And they get how cool of a project these are. So we're going there. And then at the last, at the ribbon cutting, Jim Nance talked about um, the next golf course we'd like to do is Ted Rhodes. Mm-hmm. And Ted Rhodes, obviously the famous, you know, African-American golfer, you know, teacher. And Tiger mentioned him when he won Augusta. Mm-hmm. It was one of his, his heroes. And so Jim Nance kind of looked at the new, the new mayor, Freddie O'Connell, and looked at him and said, uh, after we do Shelby, I want to be involved and we want to go to Ted Rhodes. He goes, I want to be part of that. So Mr. Mayor, hold on your hat, you know? So, and I've already done a plan for that place too. It's, it's actually not bad shape. We just have to do a few things and potentially build a range. So that's down the road. And then all our eyes are on Harbeth Hills, which is the golf course on the other side of the park from, uh, Percy Warner, which is the great golf course of Nashville. It's just, unfortunately, it's run by the city, but it's, uh, they always have the open qualifiers there. And it's, um, I've told people, if you let, you, you, you let me get my mitts on that, it could be the best course in Tennessee. Hmm. It's that, if the greens are great, the routing is great. I just have to get the car pass out of the way, cut a bunch of trees down and then, you know, rebuild, you know, reconfigure the bunkers so it'd be a little more interesting strategic. So we have three or four year, more years of working in Nashville, which is great for me. I love it. Making your way through the municipal golf system of Nashville. I love yeah. it. It's sort of I, fun, I, little by I, little. I stay right downtown and, you know, my wife's not always happy because I always come back with a couple more guitars and <laughs> get to go see live music every pretty much every night. So it's, it's, oh, a, yeah. it's a great, great city, great vibes. You know, it's a cool place. All right. So. I'd like to talk a bit about your career more broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think something that's interesting about your career is that it really spans this current era of architecture that we find ourselves in. You were there toward the beginning of the restoration movement, toward the beginning of the minimalist movement or the second golden age or whatever you want to call it. And you were helping to shape the direction of all of this, right? You were working for a firm that was right at the center of it. Even though, you know, it sort of started as this kind of outsider band. Yeah. Now now it's at the, at the very center of what's happening in yeah. golf course construction, I think. So I'm excited to get your perspective on sure. on how that's all unfolded. So if we go back to your the beginning of your career in, in golf architecture, about thirty-five years ago or so, as I understand it. Yep. It was somewhat unusual at this time to be interested in restoring golf courses. It's true. It wasn't obvious to many people or to many clubs that restoration as opposed to redesign or modernization was the way to go. So what got you interested in golf course rec- uh, restoration? Um, when I was in college, I went. To, I have an engineering degree from Michigan State or Michigan Tech. And um, luckily, the, go- the president of the club or the, of the, the college was a golfer. And in the library, they had, they had Ron Witten's book, The Golf Course. Oh, it, was only, my it was only him and me to ever check it out. 
So, you know. Oh, that's wild. So, no, God, no, and, you know, people, this book, its book is incredible. Yeah, Whenever first, I ask anybody, how did this all start? Yeah. So many people mention this book by Ron Witten. Yeah, it was his first version. And, man, that was – I. I, I, you could only check it out for two weeks at a time and I'd put it back in the, li the school library and all of a sudden he'd check it out and I'd be mad. So finally one day I, I went here, they had like open, open visitation chats with the president. And I walked in and it was usually people, you know, students bitching about something, you know, some political thing or something. And he, I walked in, I'm like, how come you're always checking out the, how come here you're stealing my book? And he looked at me and we became fast friends. He ended up being the uh, green chairman of Ventana Canyon out in the, when he re re retired out in uh, Tucson. But we sat, he's like, I was a breath of fresh air, but, um, you know, I studied that book forward and back and then, you know, sent out 300 resumes. You know, that was the boom period, right? 1990 golf. That's when National Golf Foundation was proclaiming we had to build a golf course for every day of the year, you know, to keep it up to the man. So I sent all these resumes out and um, had a bunch of job offers. And Mike, luckily, Mike Hurdson had um, sent my resume over to Ron Force, who had just started a year before that, like maybe six months in the business. And I thought that you know I was thirty at the time. I was an older student, and I was I was a golf, I was an auto designer before that, so I was late coming in the into the business at my age wise. And Ron gave me the best opportunity to start. You know, jump in right away. And Ron was, Ron was with big reason, you know, he was into the old architecture and, and uh, granted we were struggling just trying to get any job. We couldn't rebuild a green here or there, but um, the first course we worked on was Lancaster country club in, in Lancaster, Ohio. Oh, nine holes of Ross, not, not Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jack, Jack Kittle, Kittleman, I think Mike Hurdson and Kittle, I think it was Jack Kittleman. And did nine holes there. And when we 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 got the job and we started seeing these old drawings and how cool the Ross course was different from Jack's course, um, that got us into that. And so Ron and I, uh, Tom and Gil, you know, Tom was, like, I think, working at Piping Rock via, uh, via Pete at the time. So they were doing it. And Brian Silva, you know, because he wrote that, that one article about Ross. We were the only ones doing this kind of stuff actually going around, you know, and, you know, part of Ron's and my studies, we're going to see as many courses as we could, you know, we go consult somewhere and then go see 10 golf courses. So the more we went around, we realized, I think the, the collective group of us, Tom and Gil and Ron and I and Brian, that, you know, most of these courses have been modernized, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, you know, modern architects were better than the old masters. Nobody knew these guys. You know, until Frank Hannigan wrote that Hannigan wrote that wrote that article about Albert telling us nobody knew who he was. Um, so we were going around, and I was cold calling all these clubs and going, "Wow, you know," and just kind of peeling through the layers and seeing these old drawings that maybe these original architects were were pretty good, and they were onto something originally. And so that's kind of how we started getting work and. Um, you know, so Ron and I, we built a few, a handful of golf courses, but that was, you know, that sparked my fire. This was fascinating. The history, doing the archaeology and kind of how easy it was to see how things had changed. And I remember Mike, Mike Curtin told Ron, he goes, the best way to learn, you know, asked about me, like the best way he can learn is to go remodel or 
consult at clubs and learn how people learn from people's mistakes and learn from people's successes, how to be a good consultant. So I earned my chops with Ron. And then uh, three years later, I was, I, I was kind of getting either homesick. Or I wanted to get back to Michigan. You know, Uniontown, Pennsylvania wasn't where, where it was happening for me and my wife. So I, I a few architects interested in bringing me on because I started to make a reputation for myself. And then Gil had left Tom at the time. And I'd, I'd call Tom like once a month and ask him some stupid questions. It was like Chris Farley, you know, Hey man, <laughs> it was really cool. when you did that. <laughs> and uh, so he knew. Remember he, when? Yeah, remember, yeah. remember when you built high point? Yeah, exactly. And I called Bill Coor and he, he called me, you know, I called all those guys and I was just bugging everybody. Cause I was, I had a thirst for it. It was a passion for this. And uh, when Gil left, Tom heard that uh, I, I might be, uh, I had a job offer from Jerry Matthews, uh, was kind of a, a regional architect in Michigan, and Tom didn't like him at all. They didn't like each other. And uh, <laughs> Tom goes, you're not going to go work for Jerry. you got to come work for me. I'm like, okay, good. Oh, that's classic. So no, Tom, I, no. Tom, Tom was prompted to hire you because he heard that <laughs> Jerry Matthews was going to hire you. Yeah, he, didn't want me to make him good. he didn't want me to make him good. So, oh, um, that's good stuff. So yeah, so then um, you know, early on with Tom, we didn't have a whole lot of work, um, but t- my deal with Tom is I I got to keep doing consulting, and that was I've d- done that for thirty years now, and, you know, um, and I probably did while I was there for seventeen years, I probably did 80 percent of the consulting work for Renaissance, um, all on my own, my own jobs, and Tom was fine with that as long as it didn't interfere with new projects. So um, when I was running Bally Neal or stream song or something like that. <clears throat> when the shapers would go home for two weeks, I would go build bunkers somewhere else and hmm. kind of built in. I had a built in business when I left town. Yeah, for sure. So early days at Renaissance golf design with Tom Doak, I assume it was more or less you, Tom, Jim Urbina. It was it. You know, in the mid nineties, that's pretty much it. What, what were those early days like in that firm? Oh, they were fun. You know, okay, we had so much fun. Uh, we didn't have a whole lot of work. So, you know, Jim, Tom had hired, hired Jim just before Gil left, and Jim was running Charlotte Golf Club. And um, and so I moved to Traverse City, which was great for us, my wife and I, because we love Traverse City. And so the first year, I, you know, I'd just go over to Tom's, Tom's house for an hour. We'd play with some drawings and get on the phone and try. We didn't even have an office try and, you know, drum up some work. And luckily my consulting business, so is his, was doing fine, paying the bills, but not much. And then uh, I think the first job we got was either Evansville, Quail Crossing, I think of that. And that's where I didn't necessarily want to run. I wanted to learn how to shape. You know, Jim was a good shaper coming from the die and Tom, you know, was an adequate shaper too. And and so I wanted, that's what I wanted to learn how to do. And so those early days where it was all hands on deck, we brought Tom Mead on board. He was an ex-superintendent. So it was kind of the four of us. And, uh, you know, those early jobs in, uh, if Jim would run a job, I'd help shape or vice versa. And um, then we started bringing on young talent, you know, when we were building Beach Tree in Baltimore. I, that was my first job to run on my own. And so Jim was shaping. I was doing some shaping. Tom Mead would come and do a little shaping. And then um, we had Brian Slonick was my intern from Michigan State. And he lived with me. And uh, 
you know, that, that, that I've told people that was a game changer bringing him on board because he was all about the finish work. And, uh, but we'd all be on site, work all day, set up to sundown, just having a ball and then going out at night, going to the bars at night, drinking, hanging out. Um, just the camaraderie was insane. And then, you know, it kept building. Don Place got on board, you know, got brought in. Um, he started running the office that, so that got me out completely out in the field to shape and run projects. Then Eric Iverson came on then Brian Schneider. And, um, I remember when we were building, uh, we finished Cape Kit, Cape Kidnappers. We had the Renaissance Cup and I was in the cart with John Ashworth. who's a dear friend of all of ours who runs Link Soul now. And he goes, man, you guys are like, you guys are like the stones. <laughs> you know? He goes, you guys are having so much fun. You guys are rock stars. I'm like, oh, no, not really, but we do have fun. But, you know, those early days were just, you know, having that much talent on one job and just doing that, having fun, building great golf courses. And we knew we were building great stuff. You know, we were working for Tom. Yeah. So, you know, the, the energy was huge. And that team kind of came together over the course of the of the late '90s. It seems yeah. like, right? Because you started as a very small firm and eventually assembled this uh, this all star now all star cast uh, around you. You know, some one thing that happened in those early days at Renaissance Golf Design was that Sandhills yep. came online. Big. I wonder what your memories are of the impact of that project or what impressed you about what they were doing? What was new? Anything like that? How did Sandhills affect you back then? No, it was huge. You know, it was a game changer. It was, it was basically, if you build it, they will come kind of a deal and you, you could build it anywhere. All you had to do was find great land. I remember talking to Bill, one of my dumb phone calls to Bill, you know, bugging him. He was talking about Sandhills. You know, it was still just in its infancy. He had just got back. He and Ben had just got back from there, they were traveling around in a helicopter with Ron Witten, Doug Peterson, and uh, Dick Youngscap looking at sites. And he was telling me, he goes, Bruce, you, you, know, you know, Bill, he's so humble. He goes, Bruce, you're not going to understand how great this land is. <laughs> you know, it's in the middle of nowhere. So we don't know how this is going to work. And uh, we'd, all, <clears throat> we'd all heard the stories, you know, um, Dave Axelin and Dan Proctor were the great Finnish guys. And we always heard these stories about them hand raking the, the entire golf course or whatever. It was all about finish work in the details. And that's what, you know, got Brian Slonick and all of us like really interested in that, you know, sand pro work, hand work, hand edging bunkers, not bulldozers. And, you know, and that kind of turned us on. We're like, that's what we all want to do. That sounds cool. And, um, I did, I saw it just at, you know, I, shit, I spent five days there playing golf with these guys, you know, there. And it was just mind boggling. Like, this is, this is what should be done. And luckily Mike Kaiser became a member, saw that could be done. And then Mike started searching the world for great land and ended up in Oregon. And, you know, we got involved in that, but that it, it was the game changer. You know, we had a we had an architectural event that Tom, you know, Tom is so selfless. He, he wanted to get all these architects together, you know, and not dictate the future, but talk about the future. So we had this event gathering architects and we came and called it Archipelousa for a stupid name. <laughs> That's what we called it. And the first one was we invited everybody in the business to come. And um, 
let's get all those architects together somewhere very cool and hash things out. You know, where's the future of architecture? Where are we going? That's how cool Tom is. He's that forward thinking. So we had it at the Sandhills. We figured if the only places, this is the future of golf. None of the main architects showed up. They sent all their associates, which are all dear friends of mine now, and they're all good architects now. They didn't want to come because they put their nose up to Tom. They, none of them liked Tom at the time. So Bill Coors there, and Ron Forrest, you know, Ian Andrews there, a lot, a lot of people. You know, a lot of cool, all the cool people in the business showed up to that thing. And we played golf. And that night we sat there and talked about things and we all introduced each other. And I, I, I got up in front of everybody a little nervous. And I said, you know, what you saw today is the benchmark we will all be judged at from this point on. This is how epic this place is. And some people are like rolling their eyes. But I knew that that was that will be the, mo the most important modern course for the next hundred years because it sets the tone of minimalism, finding great land, you know, finding golf on the land. And obviously having Bill and Ben do it at the same time, it's pretty cool. And it's true. That was the benchmark. And we're, we're always going to be judged on that. Granted, you know, I think Bally Neal's could go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. Pacific Dunes has an ocean. But you'll never, it's like Muhammad Ali. It's going to be the reigning champion forever. You're never going to knock him out, so don't try but you're going to be real close second, you know? So I, you know, working for Tom all those years, that was our stride. We were, you know, Bally Neal, I spent a lot of time at Sandhills learning from it. Mistakes, good things, bad things, whatever, wherever we could peel from that to make Bally Neal different. I didn't want to make Sandhills 2.0. So I wanted to be completely different. And we did, you know, we, on the mowing lines, the native edges, the positioning of the bunkers, Things like that. I learned a ton from that golf course. Reminds me of the the Beach Boys and the Beatles going back and forth in the '60s mm -hmm. with uh, you know Pet Sounds, Revolver, Sergeant Pepper's, you know, just kind of raising the game. And certainly Pacific Dunes. My impression is that it was a it was a new level for Tom Doak and for Renaissance golf design. What do you think allowed that to happen? Was the inspiration of Sandhills part of it? Um, what were some of the, what was the mixture that allowed that course to be so good? Uh, it was Tom. You know, t Tom was a great leader. Tom was always comfortable in his own skin. You know, he's always understatedly elegant. He never, Tom had never overcooked the soup. So he knew it was appropriate and we just followed his lead. And, and we all knew going in, you know, this was our big, this is our big deal. This is our Sandhills. And so we all took it seriously. Jim, you know, Jim obviously ran it. I was out there, shit, almost 150 days. Don Plasic was there. Um, Brian Sloan came into his own. And um, we, you know, banded dudes existed. So we knew that, but we didn't want to build that. That was more, you know, it was David Kidd's first project. It was more of a modern golf course on an epic site. But we knew ours was going to be that good because the routing was brilliant. The landforms were there. And we just, we all had, you know, I'll never forget the first day we were there. The hair on the back of our necks was it's still up right now thinking about it. Walking that site, <clears throat> looking at each other. It's just pouring rain. We're all walking, trudging around this property. And, uh, you know, and Tom and I visited this site probably a, two years before that, just before David was building Bandon. Um, Bill Sheehan, one of Tom's great friends from Chicago, told it, you know, kind of hooked up Tom with Mike Kaiser. Mike says, well, come on out and look at it. 
you know, David's my guy. Um, but if he fails, you're on deck. And then maybe you can get, maybe, you know, look at the second course. So, uh, Tom and I went out there before we went to San Francisco turf show, spent a few days walking with Shorty Dow. Now they're just opening Shorty's the 19 hole golf course, but Shorty Dow was the caretaker. And that was a great day. We, you know, we were walk, Tom and I were walking around what we thought would have been our property. And we peeked over the hill and looked at this and went, Oh my, you know, David, go ahead and go ahead and build that golf course. We want to build that. <laughs> and Mike hadn't owned the property yet, but Tom told him, if you ever have a chance to open that, you know, buy that land north of abandoned dunes. And it came up for sale a couple of years later and got Tom involved and, and, you know, Tom and Jim worked on it hard and the routings and we all came out and, uh, but it was just the vibe. We all, you know, for some reason, you know, Don, if you go in the um, maintenance building, Ken Nice, the superintendent, was hitting his stride. Um, but if you go in the maintenance building, there's still a drawing that Don Plasek, Don Plasek, you know, he's a brilliant artist. Mm -hmm. And he did it on a, a black uh, a whiteboard with a black pen, drew all the planets in line like this. All the planets were up in a row. And that's what we all said. The planets were in a row. We built Pacific Dunes, and it's true. Who is the best shaper that you've ever worked with? Uh, Eric Iverson. Hmm. And he came on board. He was part of that late 90s. Uh, yeah. Uh, he's he's town, the most like elegant. He basically taught, you know, Jim was a good shaper, but Jim, Jim would always leave a mess. And he kind of taught us how to run bulldozers. But when Eric came on board, Eric's the most elegant shaper. You know, every pass has a purpose. And he kind of mentored both Brian's. And they're fantastic shapers now. They're equals to him. But he kind of taught us all, you know, and, and uh, I'm kind of self-taught in an excavator. You know, we had so much good talent on bulldozers. And bulldozers beat the, beat the crap out of you. You know, I was, I was the older guy. I'm like, you know, I, I'd be okay getting out of one of those things. And that's when we started using excavators. And I'm like, I think I'm going to get good in one of those. Because you're just sitting there. And the only thing you can get is carpal tunnel syndrome, basically. Um and so I got really good in that while everybody else, you know, the rock stars are still the great, great shapers are still bulldozer operators who can jump into excavators too, but they're still, they built the landforms, they built the greens. And I got really good at excavator because then I could be, I, I like building the bunkers. Hmm. But Eric is, is still, he's, you know, brilliant, brilliantly elegant. You know, he, I call him the binky. When Tom need, Tom needs the go-to guy, brings in Eric. He's the binky. He's the binky. You know, and both other Brian's and Kai's a great shaper. He'd bring he'd bring Schneider in when he wanted something wild hair. You know, some yeah. crazy ass grain. He'd bring him in. Same with with uh, with Kai. If you want something really crazy, bring in Kai. And then um, Brian Slunk somewhere in between. You know, I spent the summer. Uh, on the weekends, I was shaping over at High Point, building bunkers. And Brian Slonk was basically building the whole damn thing himself, you know. And God, is he good. He is just, he's gone so far beyond me, it's scary. You know, he's my intern. He lapped me to year two. That guy, he's a smart dude and uh, got such a great eye. He's a musician too, so that's kind of cool. But he's got such a great eye and a great, great shaper now. I was pretty fun. I hadn't worked with him in 10, 12 years to hang out at High Point this summer and watch him and Tom work together. I just, you know, I'm usually the guy walking with Tom. So I just was in the background 
just proud as can be like, man, they, these, these cats still got it. When it comes to elegance and shaping or that, that little layer of finish work that just makes a golf course something better. Yep. What do you look for? Is there a way even to describe that? I have a hard time with this as somebody who writes a lot about yeah. golf architecture. I really have a hard time describing to people in words why this bit of shaping is just a little bit better than this other bit of shaping that is similar, maybe inspired by some of the stuff yeah. that you and the team did at Renaissance Golf Design or that Corin Crenshaw did, you know, but it's but it's not there. It's not 100 percent fully there. How do you identify that or describe that extra bit of excellence in shaping? What it is is knowing how soon to get off it. Build something, run it over with a dozer and a sand pro and get off it. That's what nature is. Nature is, get, you know, natural can't, landforms are beat up. Beat up by wind, by erosion, by th things of nature. You know, it's not, it's not pretty. And he, I always tell people human nature is to make things pretty to their eye. And... Um, I see a lot of golf, a lot of shaping and a lot of golf courses polished too much. It's, I would say it's like when you're polishing a, a, a nice fine piece of furniture, when do you stop? There's no point. You know, you just keep buffing and buffing and buffing. We know when to stop buffing. You stop buffing right really soon. You don't, we don't want it to be pretty. We want it to be natural. So, you know, we're building Pacific Dunes. Jim would go away for a couple of weeks. And I remember vividly working on the ninth ferry with Brian, Brian Slonik and I. We had two weeks just to, we, we call it effing up that fairway, you know. <laughs> and, you know, it's like go with a, you know, D4 and gouge some, you know, just randomly gouge. And then come in with a sand pro and run them over and just, it's random contours. It's, it's, it's fighting your human nature to make something perfect. That's how you do it. And you know when to get off it. <clears throat> like, okay, that's good. Move on. You know, if I spend too much more time on that, it's going to look like a human built it. So that's, the, to me, that's the key. I, 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 I remember teaching guys how to build mounds or moguls. You know, we hate mounds, you know, modern mounds. It's like Tom goes, when you start, when you build a mound, when do you stop? You have to keep building them just to tie them in all of each other. You know, you, these faux links golf courses that have mounds on them. They look just got awful. They don't look natural. So um, Pete Dye always used to say, change the rate of change. That was a great, I always thought that was a great thought. If you have a mound, you know, you have a, say you have four or five mounds sitting there, or five mounds because you want them odd. You want them all to be different. You want them to look like windblown. So windblown dunes have a leeward side where it's long and then drops off at the end. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some are pointed mounds, some are flat tops, some are round, some are awkward. You're just trying to make them awkward. That's nature. And also look around. You know, the biggest key for me is like nature's everywhere. Just go look at the woods and look at the contours in the woods and just replicate those there. Um, you just got to have your eyes open. It's, it's not that hard. It's just you have to fight your human instinct to make something pleasing to your eye, even though natural is more pleasing. You just... Your brain doesn't work that way. So that's kind of how I always tell shapers, hey, just go make a mess. We'll clean it up and it might look really cool. And usually yeah. it does. 
go make a mess, start cleaning it up and stop before you get all the way, yeah. all the way to when it's clean. Up too much. But, you know, you know, Slonik and Schneider and Eric, they're just brilliant at building those fairway contours. And so is, you know, Angela, you know, all the younglings that we've trained over the years, they're all good at it too. Um, it's just going down quirky. You got to make sure it drains. You understand drainage, um, but just understand um, how natural dunes work and how the wind blows one side and the other side steep or back and forth. Um, just don't over. Uh, I always say, I always give Tom credit for teaching us restraint, and Tom is the best at it. He does, you know, his golf. None of his golf courses are over eye candied. He he thinks you know eye candy is just a unnecessary nuisance to get pictures taken of their golf course. Tom is all about ground features and greens and bunkers are a bunkers are important, but the frilliness of the bunkers, he could care less about. He was like, and he, he gets it. Bill, you know, I always tell people, Bill and Tom are the great architects because they think about golf all the time. And we were building golf courses for Tom. It was about golf and he gave us a little bit of time to make it look cool. Because we wanted to look cool, you know. It's all the chunking and all that frilly bunkers. He only gave us so much time. It was like, hey, man, move on to the next hole. So we snuck in the artwork where I think modern golf courses now are all about artwork. Mm. Not a lot about golf. And those two guys are still, you know, Tom is, Tom is back to number one right now. The work he's putting out is insane and so different than anybody else. You know, when everybody's zigging, he's zagging. Because he's not smarter than everybody, and the the golf courses he's cranking out in this short period right now are so diverse and so good and so understated. You know, not a lot of frilly bunkers. You know, they're, they're just pure golf. So um, that's kind of how we look at it. You know, Bruce, we haven't talked yet about restoration, hmm? <laughs> and that's been a lot of your work, especially since you left Renaissance Golf Design about. 13 years ago, I, I yeah, suppose, uh, around, around, right after you built Streamsong Blue, you ran that during, construction during, side. Yeah. Actually, it's like Tom came to me just, we were just starting, you know, Jim had just been let go a year before that by Tom. And, and uh, he came to me and said, uh, we were just about to start Streamsong and I wanted to do that. And he goes, you ever think about going on your own? He goes, I'm signing all these contracts of all your, all your projects. Go, yeah, I can see the writing on the wall. It was 2010, you know, stock market just crashed and he was trying to cut cut salaries. I'm like, yeah, I can see that. Nice timing. But he said, you can take all your clients with you. They'd be fine. And so I ran Stream Song as under Hepner Golf Design. And then I had a I had 30 clients right out of the box. So I've been going pretty strong since. A lot of those are long-term clients. Clients that you've, you know, you started with under Renaissance Golf Design and have continued to work with even to the present day. You know, this might be a hard question to answer, like picking your favorite kid or something. But what is the most satisfying restoration that you've been part of? They're all good. You know, the, the cool part is probably once once I went on my own, a lot of them start the, the rest. You know, all my restorations are slow burns. You know, I I have 33 clients. I had to did a list. I have 33 current clients. 15 of them are 25 years or older I've had as a client. And so a lot of them are slow burns. We're not doing these $15 million jobs. We've been doing slow burns over the years and restoring these places. And it takes you know, a lot of these early on, they weren't 
nobody was in, it wasn't in vogue like it is today to drop 15 million bucks on a, a classic golf course. They didn't even know they had a classic golf course when it first started. So uh, we would, you know, pick and pick away at the golf courses. Um, so about, about 2010, a lot of them started to really come together like blue mound. It took a long time to get Blue Mound where it is. And we still got some ways to go. I'm going to rebuild all, all the bunkers next year. And this That's, is a Seth Rayner design uh, in, in Wisconsin. Yeah, it just, is, uh, yeah, really classic Seth Rayner stuff now, but it didn't look like that about well, 20 not, years ago. Yeah, it was full of pine tree, you know, spruce trees. So, you know, a lot of them are starting to come together and like, wow, you know, I could see it. You know, I can see the force from the trees on these old designs. So, you know, it's pretty obvious to me. It's just not obvious to everybody else, especially the members. So um, I don't think, you know, I just like my body of work. It's all, I always tell people, I work at the coolest clubs in the country. You know, they're not, there's a handful of top hundred courses there. And I've worked at a bunch of them and built a few. But a lot of them are like, just like the second hundred like below the radar, you know, obviously Cape Arundel and places like that, Country Club of Fairfield, a lot of those just small ones that they've allowed me to do my job. And that's my sense. Right now, that's that's all I, you know, I'm getting I'm not close to retiring, but I'm slowing things down a bit. And I just want to help. I want clubs that want to be helped and let me help them. And I have a whole stable full of them. So there's, you know, it's hard to pick. I got 33 of them. You know, there's some cool ones that nobody's heard of. North Shore Golf Club up in Wisconsin, uh, North Lake Winnebago. That's unbelievably cool. Mm. You know, there's a lot of, you know, Belvedere obviously up here is getting a lot of ink. Um, Tim Aquana down Jacksonville starting to get more ink because they just, mm -hmm. you know, Jim Furyk has event. I couldn't be more proud of that. That's, that could be some of my best work there. At Tim Aquana in Florida. Yeah, man, it turned out really good. I'm, a, I'm luckily I'm a member there now, so I plan on. I don't know if I'm retired there or spent a lot more time there because it's just a golf course. So walkable, so playable, so much fun, challenging. I just love it. Yeah, it looks great. I haven't been there myself, but I'd really oh. like like to go sometime. Uh, you know, Essex County Club is one that sure. you've uh, worked on for a long time, and that's one of my very favorite courses. And uh, the superintendent there, Eric Richardson, is one of the best in the business. I my impression is that he could work at just about any club he wanted to, but he yeah, wants was, to he wants was, to work there. I just did a big tour. I, I was like, say, I was on the East Coast before I, I drove back home. I was there, Cape Arundel there, and Booth Bay Harbor all on all on three different days. And Eric is just the best. You know, they they came hard at him really hard for Brookline before they mm. put that up. They came twice hard at him, and he is. He could be the best by far. And, and we're going to rebuild all those bunkers over the next five years. He's got two excavators. I'm just going to, you know, jet in, build 10 bunkers. He's going to put them back together. That's a slow burn too. And, and it's a lot of it has to do one is a lot has to do with the superintendent, but it also has to do with the comfortable, how comfortable the membership is in their skin. Essex County is it's just the greatest membership. They're just so chilled. And they don't care about anybody else, Brookline and all, you know, Charles River and all those other ones. They just do their own thing. And that's, those are great clubs. I love working at those places. You know, that's such an important point. There's a lot of monkey see, monkey do mm. among American private clubs. 
Oh, right now it's the worst. <laughs> Everybody's doing the same stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and it's better stuff than was done in the open doctor era, I think. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. but you have to appreciate a place like Essex County or a place like Cape Arundel, which I also absolutely love because you've worked there with the superintendents hand in hand and with the membership over decades. Yeah. It's been so patient. And something that I think is really important about that process is that it allows the golf courses to continue to feel like themselves to continue to, to feel old, yeah. right? This has been a big hobby horse of mine lately. People who have uh, read some of my recent writing might be bored of me talking about it again, but I love when a course feels as old as Essex County does, even though you're there, Eric is there dialing things in, making things better, still feels like 1917 out there. That's the key. In these new, these new projects, my wife made a really good, my wife, Deb, it's a beautiful woman. Yesterday we were talking about this and she goes, our current generation, and these, and this this has to do with the projects being built, these $15, $20 million renovations. Yeah, that happen all at once, right? Yeah. One 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 off season, all of a sudden, boom. And what what she and we I, I call it clickbait architect architecture. It's Instagram architecture. And it's built for the photograph. You know, it's like boom. And they are, you know, you look at, you know, all these open courses being built or PGA courses being built and they are stunning, but they don't look old. And my wife said yesterday, she goes, we have five senses in this. A lot of people are only using one, their eyes in the feel of golf. And that's why you go to Cape Arundel, you taste it, you smell it, you hear it, the wind blowing, you feel it in your feet, you feel it in your hands as well as your eyes, but you're using all your senses when you play a great old golf course and these rebuilt wonders are mono stands of perfect grass, perfect, uh, you know, crushed quartz sand, which isn't even natural. Billy bunkers under them, which is not natural, you know, um, air systems, USGA spec, all that. Oh yeah. You know, the the air system, precision air underneath that, just absurd. And that's how you get to $20 million. And I've looked at them all and they don't feel old. They just feel like a, you know, it feels like a resto mod, you know, I'm in the cars too. So it feels like a, you, know, you watch Meekum and you see this great Mustang come by and it's got a brand new engine and it's got big jig spinner wheels on it. And you're just like, yuck, you know, and that's what some of these feel like, you know, they're, they're done really well. They're, they're spectacular, but, do they feel old? Do they play old? No, they don't. They don't have the modeled grass. They have that that hundred years of fairway turf that we have at Cape Arundel plays so beautifully, and the greens, you know, just insane. Obviously, um, but yeah, that's that's what I, I have a little issue with, and that's why I like working at my old clubs. You know, I got projects, one to two million dollar projects. I'm fixing a golf course, and it's just as good as the fifteen million dollar one next door. It might even be better because it feels it still has that smell, taste, feel of an old golf course. Yeah. Maybe that's why you work at so many of these kind of blue blood New England clubs, because that's sort of the vibe, right? Yeah, they're conservative. They're they're you know, but they're they're all changing too. They're all, you know, it's the new blood coming in. Um, you know, the young, you know, I'm used to working, 
you know, my, I always worked with the elders and they, you know, when I was 30, they were all 50. Now I'm close to 60. They're all 80. You know, they're all getting pushed out the, the boardroom. And <laughs> they're, they're, they're getting overwhelmed on the green committee. Yeah. It's happening. It's pretty systemic in my business. So it's kind of, it's, it's disheartening. I've had to let go a few clubs because they're going in the wrong direction and kind of breaking my heart. But, um, but that's, it's happening even at some of the old blue blood courses. So it's, it's, I don't, I don't, I don't want to sound like a grumpy old guy, but it's, it's definitely changing And the money's, the monies that are being spent are just outrageous. And I don't know if these things are, if it's sustainable. Yeah. You know, I think Derek, you know, Derek Duncan, when you're, you know, I think he's a great guy. Yeah. Uh, he he yeah, was one of our, one of our colleagues in the podcasting and yeah, architecture he was, space. He was yeah. interviewing Don Plasek, I don't know, a couple of months ago or last month. And he kept going, I think we're going the wrong direction. You know, didn't we learn from the eighties in the early nineties of order spending, you know, the Nicholas Fazio eras, which they did great jobs, but they were spending $20 million building golf courses. Now everybody's spending 40 million. But I mean, did we learn our lessons from any of that? That the greatest courses that were built in the last 25 years were by Tom Doak and Bill Coor, and they were like $3 million. You know, Pacific Dunes might've been three. Bally, you know, I think you could safe to say that Bally Neal, Pacific Dunes, and Barnboogle were built less than $10 million hmm. combined. And now we're now we're spending more than ten million dollars restoring a golf course. I don't just doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of striking. I mean, it, it's always interesting to see which lessons we learn from history because we definitely learn something. I, I'm not of the uh, of the mind that we learn nothing. And specifically, I think that we've learned about the virtues of tree removal and wider corridors and features that uh, look, uh, you know, have the shape of being restored or vintage, looking at old photographs and trying to replicate that stuff. But there might be a more important underlying lesson or series of lessons that we haven't learned about maintainability, sustainability, financial frugality, and just about being yourself and not just doing what everybody else is doing. It seems like those lessons have been more difficult for some reason than the others. No, I agree. I, my, my big saying everywhere I, I work, wherever I work now, quit trying to be the Joneses, be the Joneses, you know, let's lead, let's be the, be comfortable in your own skin in the neighborhood. People are going to start looking at you instead of you like, well, they just spent seventeen million. How can you know? I, I have a lot of clubs. Like, well, they spent seventeen million rebuilding their golf course. How come we're not doing that? I'm like, well, you're, you're kind of good. You're probably better than them. Why would you? Uh, well, it's envy. You know, it, it's um, and it's a lot has to do with you know the kind of group of people taking power now. They're they they want to be someone who they're not. I want to be them. Like, man, you're you know. Luckily, most of my clubs. And, you know, I think I've been the right guy for them. It's like, no, we're pretty cool. We're good. We're comfortable in our own skin. This golf course is fine. We don't need to have pure grass everywhere. We don't have to have the the expensive bunkers. They're just fine. Use the cheap sand. It's, you're just, it's just sand, you know. Um, you know, it's bunk, as long as it plays well, why, why are we spending 200 bucks a ton to bring it in from Ohio or somewhere? So, um it's it's just where we're going in the business. It's a little disheartening. Um, I I got to 
I've become really good friends with Dottie Pepper and David Memorial, you know, um, and David's, he is a true soul. He's a deep rooted in the history of the game. And I was at their house a couple of weeks ago, spent the night and David just got back from playing like the dinner matches at Murfield or something like that. Just flew back. <laughs> just cool things that David Normal does. God, yeah. he's, he's like unbelievable. The clubs he's a member at, but there's nobody I know in, in golf that's more steeped in the history. And we were, we, you know, he and Dottie and I were sitting having dinner and talking about where golf is going. And it was just right after the Ryder Cup. And just the, the taste of that was just awful. And the, the live and the money situation with the players and, and where a lot of architecture is going. And he goes, I think we're losing the soul of the game, you know. And for him, someone like that to say it really struck me. And I, I agree. It's like in my business, I think we're losing some of the soul of the game, too. And there's plenty of architects out there more than happy to spend the 20 million bucks, you know? Oh shit. Yeah. I'll do that. Yeah. You know, I'll find a way. I'll give you my version of, you know, I think, I think Tom said this some recently he goes, Oh, the, there's a lot of restorers of restorers going on right now. You know, all these courses that have been restored are getting restored again. I know there's courses where, where it's, we're, we're, we're restoring. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Did you just do that? There's a handful of mine that are, you know, that I've left and like, I think I left it in pretty good shape and I only spent like a million bucks restoring that. And now, you know, the next, the young guys coming in going, yeah, we're going to, let's drop, you know, let's rebuild everything. And the, the younger members will go like, yeah, because they did it over there. So it, it's happening. But I, I thought David was very poignant, you know, where the game of golf is not very fun to watch on TV anymore. You know, Jim Nance, I talked to him about it. He goes, yeah, it's just it's not a very good product. You know, they're, they're, they're struggling. You know, the, the fields are, you know, with Liv coming in and we all know what that, you know, we all have our opinions about that. That's just pure money. And then, you know, the rest of the products is watered down. You know, you're going to watch the, we're going to watch the open. We're going to watch the Augusta and maybe a couple other events, but the other stuff is almost unwatchable unless it's a great golf course. Yeah. Well, there's a reason I opened this podcast by, uh, talking to you for 20 minutes about Percy Warner mm -hmm. because I think that if we're searching for hope somewhere that it's got to be in projects like that. And I so, so I think that's something, right? That was great hope. You know, every major city, you know, I grew up in all the public courses of Detroit, the city, D Detroit city courses, Rackham, Rogel are all Donald Roscoe's. I grew up playing yeah. down. Those are Rackham. cool. Yeah. Rackham is, uh, yeah. Very, yeah, very I grew up playing. I, I worked there. I, you know, I tried to fix the holes that were changed by the, um, when the highway got put in. So I worked there for a while when I was early working for the Ron, I got the original Ross plan. That's a, you know, Joe Lewis used to play as good. He used to have the, the black PJ events there. Right. But every major city, you know, the great cities right now, Memphis has a great city program. They've sunk a lot of money into it. San Antonio, San Antonio has an insane public mm -hmm. system. Bra is it Brett Brackenridge uh, Park Brackenridge is there? Telling us. Yeah, telling us. So we're modeling what we're doing in Nashville. You know, luckily, it, what we have some smart people, Stuart, Witt, and Jim, you know, from the Tennessee Golf Foundation. They've actually put together a committee to work with the city. And their motto is golf people run golf and golf money stays in golf. And if we do that in Nashville, <clears throat> we're gonna, you know, Nashville has the bones. They have seven great, you know, really good golf courses that just need some minor work. And all of them, I'm just fixing what needs to get fixed. I'm not blowing any of them up. 
And that's how we're keeping the budget to two million less. And that's how it's sustainable because you know, once it gets north of two, three million bucks, people are like, what are you doing? You know, people get disinterested. You, you can't raise the money that way. Hmm. But the two million dollars is kind of easy to raise. And and if you have, you have someone like me that's only going to go there, fix it, what needs to get fixed and everything else is fine. You know, it's a muni. Just fix the things that are important to make the golf sustainable, more interesting, which is the greens, and and move on. Let 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 them play golf. You know, eighteen bucks a, a buck a hole. I'll play all day long. You know, so that's I think that is the future. You know, luckily, um, the Lynx Trust, you know, Will and and Mike McCartan, who, who all work for us, they're running that, and that's got some good momentum. Um, you know, Cobbs Creek, if they ever get that thing going, you know, they've been talking about, it's a lot of talk. <laughs> you know, what I'm proud of, Stuart Smith, who's, you know, my dear friend in Nashville, he goes, they're all talking, we did it. You know, I'm <laughs> like, right on, brother. So we're going to keep doing it. But I think you're right. That's, here's here's the interesting thing about Nashville. There are no seats at the table. All these, you know, Nashville is a booming, booming town. I think maybe another million people move in there in the next 10 years. Yeah. And there's no golf spots. Every country club has a 300 person waiting list. Uh, initiation fees, initiation fees at Hillwood are going up to $150,000. Wow. It's like, what, you know? So, um, there's just no room. There's no place to play. And, um, these high end guys making good money, working for Pinnacle and Amazon moving to town, they want a place to play. They have to, they have to play the public golf courses and they're forced to play courses that are, under maintained and undermanned. We have 37 employees maintaining seven golf courses in Nashville and they're packed. So all we're trying to do is increase the budget of each golf course to make it decent golf and then fix all the little things at each golf course that we have to make it you know, where it's good golf, it's sustainable, it's playable, it's fun. And we're hoping that we get Nashville to be the best you know, system in the country. Bruce, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Good luck with all of your projects and hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. This episode of the Friday Golf Podcast was produced by Matt Ruchis. Thank you, Matt. If you've been enjoying what we've been doing on the Friday Golf Podcast lately, then Give us a rating and or review wherever you might be listening to us. Those really help us grow and find new listeners. It's a quick thing that you can do to support us. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back with another episode soon. Music.